Welcome to Reproductive Left, produced in collaboration by Community Radio WERU and Mabel Wadsworth Center, a feminist, client-centered sexual and reproductive health care provider in Bangor, Maine. I'm your host, Abby Strout. On each show, we speak with local experts to explore issues that impact our sexual and reproductive health. Topics include, but aren't limited to, reproductive rights, access to health care, feminism, LGBTQ rights, and women's sexuality. We wrap up each show with our Ask Mabel segment, where we answer your sexual and reproductive health questions. For more information on Mabel Wadsworth Center or to listen to past episodes, visit MabelWadsworth.org. You can also find Reproductive Left on WERU.org in the archives, on iTunes or SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcasts. And thanks for tuning in. Good afternoon. I have some news to announce today. Um, This episode will be the second to last episode of Reproductive Left. It has been such a joy to bring you monthly interviews with local Maine sexual and reproductive health experts, and we are grateful to our collaboration with Community Radio WERU. As the center looks to the future, we will discuss the possibility of podcasting again. Be sure to follow Mabel Wadsworth Center on Facebook or Instagram and visit our website to find out what is next for us. Today's episode is a little unique. We're highlighting pieces of our past interviews, starting with our very first interview with Shannon Brenner, a former student at the University of Maine who led a student group called the One in Three Campaign, which worked to reduce stigma associated with abortion. This interview never aired on WERU. It was only available online. You can listen to the entire episode at www.mablewadsworth.org or on SoundCloud, on iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's titled Reproductive Left, Episode 1. One in three women in the United States will have an abortion in her lifetime. It's one of the most common procedures done, and it's a normal part of reproductive lives. Yet women who make this choice remain silenced and stigmatized. The mainstream conversations tend to be very political and leave out the realities of women's lives. Today our guest will speak to us about the stigma associated with abortion and what we can do to reduce it. Here with me is Shannon Brenner, a sociology student at the University of Maine. She is the co-chair of the Student Women's Association, or SWA, the feminist organization at the university and is currently working with the national organization Advocates for Youth on their One in Three campaign. Hi, Shannon, and welcome to Reproductive Left. Let's start by having you explain to us the One in Three campaign. What is it, and what are the goals of the campaign? Thank you for having me on, Abby, to talk about the One in Three campaign first off. And um, as you mentioned earlier, one in three women will have an abortion in her lifetime, um, which is where the One in Three campaign got its name, um, because that is a fairly significant statistic if you think about how many women then are in need of this service, um, in need of this reproductive health care. So the One in Three campaign has the goal of addressing the stigma that surrounds this choice. A lot of times, even though abortion is legal in this country, there is still a lot of stigma that a woman will 
have thrown at her um, and society about what kind of woman she is sexually, like what kind of moral choices is she making about her life. And so this um, campaign sort of wants to stop that stigma and kind of break the silence around abortion by telling stories. Can you talk a little more about the storytelling? The storytelling is really important because it it makes abortion very personal. If one in three people or one in three women have an abortion in their in her lifetime, then if you think about nine women that you know, three of them will have had an abortion in her in her lifetime. So that means that these stories are the stories of our sisters, of our neighbors, of our mothers, of our grandmothers, of the lunch lady in the cafeteria. You know, you you never know who has a story about about abortion pre Roe v Wade, post Roe v Wade. They're very diverse and they all speak to the need to allow this to be an accepted part of a woman's life. A lot of women stay in silence. They don't share their stories because they're afraid of the stigma. They're afraid of the judgment that they'll receive if they openly talk about their abortion. But, you know, if as women start to feel more comfortable and are if women are willing to share their stories, then that can be a very powerful way to start to break down those barriers of, oh, it's only those women who get abortion. No, it's it's one in three women who will get an abortion. So storytelling is a very personal and a very um, in-touch way to, to get that message across about ending stigma and accepting abortion as a necessary and safe and important part of a woman's life. How do you collect the stories? How do you reach out to women to to ask them to share this intimate part of their lives? Um, uh, personally, um, myself and Swa, we haven't had any experience collecting stories yet. Hopefully we'll be able to do that in the upcoming months. But I know that the One in Three campaign has done just a lot of outreach um, via their website. They have um, a lot of sources on their website and encourage women to submit there. And they have a book that recently came out that shares the stories and that can hopefully inspire other women to also share their stories. But an important part of the story co- story collecting process is also making sure that the women are ready to share their stories. Um, even yes, if one in three women have had an abortion, you probably know somebody who has. But you, it's not good to just like go up to and target that person and pressure them to tell their story because this is a very personal experience. And even though it is a good thing to break the silence around abortion, it's also not a good thing to pressure a woman to divulge a part of her life that she might not feel comfortable talking about just yet. Be whether it be her for personal reasons, for the reasons of stigma in society that we've been talking about. So story collecting can be done in different outreach ways. I hope to get more experience with that um, in the upcoming months, but definitely always with that in mind of making sure you're respecting the woman where she's at and in her, her process with her, with her abortion and her, her story. Our next episode originally aired in July of 2015. It is with a local sexuality educator and professor, Dr. Sandy Karen. In the episode, she discusses her research about the sex lives of college students. If you'd like to listen to the full episode, you can find it at weru.org in the archives, at mabelwadsworth.org, or on SoundCloud, iTunes, or through wherever you get your podcasts. The episode is titled The Sex Lives of College Students, an interview with Dr. Sandy Karen. There's a quote that I... Um, love of yours. We live in a sex-saturated culture 
and sex silent. Can you talk a little bit about what that means? Sure. Um, and I say that a lot. That's very interesting. <laughs> we're sex saturated, but we're sex silent. It's it's like sex is everywhere. Everywhere it's around us, but we. It's like we're not going to talk to you as our as my child. I'm not going to say anything to you because I don't want to put ideas in your head. As if they're not already there. As if not saying anything. And so it's fascinating to me that we need to do a better job talking about these issues because otherwise we're leaving people in the dark. We're leaving them to, let's say, erotica to educate them rather than their own parents or the school mm-hmm. would present a very, you know, here's the science, here's what we know about the facts and figures. You know, we really need to do a better job. But like I said, too often sex education is too little, too late, and too biological. The next interview clip is from another very early episode with an University of Maine professor of sociology, Dr. Amy Blackstone. She does research on people and families who choose to be child-free. In this clip, she explains the difference in the terms child-free and childless. To learn more about her research, you can listen to the full episode on weru.org in the archives, at mabelwadsworth.org, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is is titled Child-Free with Dr. Amy Blackstone. You can also find more of Amy's work online at we're not having a baby.com where she blogs with her husband Lance. You talk a little bit about the difference in the terms child-free and childless. I can. Um and it's an important difference, so I'm glad that you asked about that. So there are uh, people who are parents and have children <laughs> and people who are not parents and, and don't have children. And often we think of the people who don't have children as childless, which is technically true. They are childless. They are without children. Uh, but there are increasingly more people who have made that that an explicit choice. They've chosen not to become parents. They've chosen not to have children. And often those people refer to themselves and prefer to be referred to as child-free rather than childless. And um, it's not uh, meant to be a statement against children, (laughs) but it's meant to be sort of a positive way of of embracing a choice that was made. And I think as a researcher, I think that the distinction is really very important. Um, As someone who studies the experiences of people who've chosen not to have children, you can imagine that those experiences differ from those of people who don't have children but want them. So uh, the, the childless, uh, that term is generally used to refer to people who don't have children but want them or plan to have them at some point. At some point. And child-free, again, is uh, a term used to refer to people who've made the choice not to have children. And now you said your research really focuses on, on adults who've chosen not to have children, so the child-free? Correct. Um, how do you find uh, the people to interview, and how, how do you sort of know they have chosen to be child-free and aren't, aren't actually childless? Good question. Well, I've been studying this for a while now, so uh, it's easier to find people <laughs> to interview now because I, I'm, I'm in the community. Uh, there, there's a really active online child-free community, so, so I, have, uh, I know many more child-free people than I once did. When I first started doing this research, I really relied on my own 
personal networks. So as someone who herself is child-free, who's made the choice not to have children, I do happen to have other friends who've also made that choice. So uh, in all honesty, it was a... um, I used good old snowball sampling methods and started with people I knew and asked them if they knew others who who were child free and uh, my my sample of people who I've interviewed has grown over time that way. What are some of the questions that you ask them about their lives? Um, so, oh, you also asked how do I know if they're child free versus oh, childless? Yes. Um, so, I do generally always start by asking people to. Um, talk a little bit about how how it is and why it is that they made the choice not to have children. And, and um, that's an opportunity for them to, to be clear that, yes, it was an explicit and intentional choice. So we sort of get that out right away. Um, and I, I'm really interested in in a couple of things. One, I, I, I'm interested in, in the process that, that people um, – through which people decide not to have children. So is it a process or it, is it a – I woke up one morning and suddenly, you know, had this epiphany that I don't want children. It's usually the the, the first thing, not the second. <laughs> it is often a process for people that occurs over time. Um, I'm also a sociologist of gender, so I'm always interested in how that process may differ for men and women, um, which, you know, you would expect that it probably does because we're socialized differently. And uh also very interested in social responses to people's choice. So for those who've, who've chosen not to be child or not chosen to be child free, uh, what do their families think about their choice? How do their parents feel about the possibility of not having grandchildren? Um, are the, have they struggled to find friends who understand their choice or do their friends understand their choice? What's it like for them in the workplace? So uh, really interested again in, in sort of social responses to the choice. If you are just tuning in, you're listening to Reproductive Left, produced in collaboration by Mabel Wadsworth Center and Community Radio WERU. We announced at the beginning of the show that this is the second to last episode of Reproductive Left, and on the show today, we're highlighting past interviews. The next interview is with Jennifer Thibodeau. She works for the Abortion Care Network, an organization that connects and offers resources to hundreds of independent abortion care providers like Mabel Wadsworth Center across the country. If you want to listen to the full episode, you can find it at WERU in the archives at MabelWadsworth.org or or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is titled, Who Are Independent Abortion Care Providers? with Jennifer Thibodeau. Hi, Jennifer. Welcome to Reproductive Left. Thank you so much for being on the show with me today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so thrilled to be here. So the first thing I just want to ask you about is um, the ACN, the Abortion Care Network, unites independent abortion providers across the country. Can you just um, define what an independent abortion provider is for our listeners? Sure. So independent abortion care providers are nonprofit clinics. They're women's health centers. There's They are physicians' offices um, and hospitals that perform abortions. Um, a lot of them are women-owned and women-operated. Um, some of them are feminist um, in, in their founding and their values. Um, 
they are deeply rooted in their communities. And so um, a clinic, an independent clinic in one community is likely um, has all their staff based in that community. Probably everyone who works there comes from, lives in or comes from around that community. Um, their headquarters are usually in the same spot as their clinics. Um, and they, um, they provide the majority of abortion care in the United States. So, um, there's many, many independent abortion care providers. They look different. Um, every, there are as many different kinds of providers as there are clinics. Um, and one thing that they don't have is a sort of national or unifying, um, organization um, to to help with things like fundraising, um, HR, advocacy, things like that. So they're kind of all on their own in that way. And that sort of speaks to the independent aspect. So what are the unique challenges that the independent providers face in the United States? Sure. So again, it's going to look as different as every clinic looks because they're independent and they're, um, the, the one unifying factor is that they're independent. Um, but for the most part, um, independent providers are usually found in more hostile states or hostile regions. Um, I mean, when I say hostile, I mean hostile to abortion access. Um, so you're going to find more anti-choice legislation, um, more anti-choice harassment, probably from protesters. Um, they are usually up against some of the more restrictive laws um, because they are in those states and regions um, that are not as supportive of abortion rights. Um, independent providers in the U.S. also provide the majority of care after the first trimester. Um, so they're typically dealing with the more medically, um, if there are medically complex cases, usually an independent provider is going to be the one who can provide care. Um, so they are, um, you know, it can be more difficult to find the right staff. It can be more difficult to deal with more aggressive protesters in those cases. Um, it's still a very safe procedure, but can be more complicated. Um, but I would say most of all, one, the probably the biggest challenge that they face is that they don't have that national infrastructure. Um, so they don't have name recognition and, you know, every single independent provider has a different name, has their own name. Um, it makes it harder for patients to find them because they don't have that sort of code word. Um, and it also makes, um, it makes it harder for donors to find them too. So it can be a little bit tougher to raise money. Um, it's harder to be visible sometimes. Um, and as much as being rooted in the community is essential and important, it's also tough to sort of be um, an open secret. The next clip is from the fall of 2017. We had the, the opportunity to interview Victoria Ebwa, an African leader with the Mandela Washington Fellowship. The Mandela Washington Fellowship for Young African Leaders is the flagship program of the Young African Leader Initiative that empowers young people through academic coursework, leadership training, and networking. Each fellow is connected with a local leader or organization for mentorship during their program. Last summer, we had the privilege of being paired with Victoria Ebwa, a midwife and an NGO leader who provides sexual and reproductive health care in Winchi, a rural town in Ghana. She discusses her work 
she discusses the work she's doing to improve the health and wellness of girls in her community. If you want to hear more from Victoria, find the full episode at weru.org in the archives, at mabelwadsworth.org, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's titled The Landscape of Reproductive Health in Ghana with Victoria Ebois. I'd love to hear you start by talking just about what your day-to-day life is like working mm-hmm. as a midwife in Ghana. And as my daily activities, I go for work in the morning, close at 2 because I'm the, in charge of the labor ward. 2 is the normal duty time, then 3 to 5 I'll stay and observe before I move to the house. Being the in charge on weekends, I don't work. So every weekend it's my free period and that is what I use for my private activities. So daily, that is what I do. My private activity that is managing my NGO. Can you tell me a little bit about your NGO? Yeah, as a young midwife from the nursing training college, I was posted to this village with all the energy to start working. I was so ready to put all I've learned to practice. And then one thing I noticed was there was a high rate of pregnant women dying babies dying, and then young girls in the senior and junior high schools also dying. It was a difficult issue for me because I felt like there was something wrong. That's why all these things were being caused. And by then, I was like like 21 years, and I was a junior staff, so I go for work, I close to, I'm in the house, nothing. So it just dawned on me, why don't I go into the communities to see why? Why are they not coming to the hospital? Why are they delaying seeking care? What is causing these young girls to cause abortion and dying? So I will move like me one hour to a community, start talking to the young girls and other stuff. Then I noticed one, it was ignorance, especially the young girls, people get pregnant and it's a shame in the community to get pregnant. So the next thing is to abort it. And abortion, they don't know what to do, where to seek care. There were no prevention methods for them. Then I knew, oh, this is the issue. Then I can do something. I moved to talk with pregnant women. Some were engaged with farming activities, not thinking about pregnancy. The only thing is, it's time for them to deliver. Then they come to the hospital. If lucky, they get access, they come to the hospital. I did this for almost um, eight to one year. Then I saw that it was very productive, so I wrote to the Ministry of Education to have access to the junior and senior high schools, to have time to go to the school so that I could meet um, the girls, the ladies together, and then talk to them. Then I wrote to the chiefs in various rural communities and had access. So um, I came back, talked to some of my colleagues at work who had equal view with me, and then we started. That was when we started moving to the communities. We started moving to the villages. Because we were fed up with sitting at the hospital where the ambulance will rush in, complications, then we have to mm. be rushing. I think it's better we go to them and then talk to them, then they will come. We needed to market our products. So they agreed and we started going to the communities. And so from 2007, we've been doing this, but it was 2011 that I got to know before we can impact much, we need to put ourselves together because all this we're doing, we just go and do it on our own. In case even something happened, we can be held responsible. So we need to let the government know what we are doing. That was when we started putting the whole thing into a form of organization. So we'll be recognized, then we can go more and then do our activities. So now Green Life Foundation is a non-governmental organization 
registered by the Ghana government, where we take care to the people, we do anything. But our main focus is on pregnant women, children, and then the school going, going young girls. And we are really, really impacting life. A lot of near-miss cases have been abolished. Any school we go to, we give our contacts. And surprisingly, there isn't a single day I don't get a call from a student. And they are okay when they call you. They're able to express themselves and you're able to also assist them. And the, though induced abortion in the criminal way has not stopped, but I think it's minimal. And to wrap up our second-to-last episode of Reproductive Left, we are re-airing the first-ever Ask Mabel with our nurse practitioner, Terry Marley DeRozier. Hello, and welcome to Ask Mabel, where you will have an opportunity to get answers to your sexual and reproductive health questions. My name is Terry Marley DeRozier. I'm the women's health care nurse practitioner and co-founder of the Mabel Wadsworth Women's Health Center. Today's question is from Natalie, who asks, I've been told I need a yearly gynecologic exam, but I don't need a pap test for three years. If I don't need a pap test, why do I need the yearly exam? That's a great question, Natalie. The current recommendations for pap testing are, first pap test, age 21. Repeat pap test every two years between age 21 and 29. At age 30, the pap test would be done with co-testing for human papillomavirus, HPV. And if that is negative and there's no history of abnormal pap smears, a pap smear is recommended actually every five years. Even if it isn't a year when you need a pap test, the yearly gynecologic exam is advised to make sure that you aren't having any problems with breast health, pelvic or period complaints, contraception needs, or STD screening. So remember, every woman, every year, whether you need a pap test or not, get a gynecologic exam yearly. That's it for today, and thank you for tuning in to Reproductive Left, produced in collaboration by Community Radio WERU and Mabel Wadsworth Center. As I announced earlier, this is our second-to-last episode of Reproductive Left. We've truly enjoyed bringing you monthly interviews with local Maine experts and value our collaboration with WERU. Please continue to follow our work on Facebook or Instagram or at www.mablewadsworth.org. I'm your host, Abby Strout, and please tune in next time for our final episode right here on Community Radio WERU, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming around the world at WERU.org.